Today, I sat down with Noah Kahn, singer and songwriter, to talk about life as he knows it as a young man finding success in the music business. You may know Noah from his single, Hurt Somebody, and although it's a great song, he is anything but a one-trick pony. Noah released his LP, Busyhead, this year, and I cannot recommend it enough. False Confidence, Mess, Cynic, Carlos Song, and the title track all come to mind. I guarantee if you give this album a listen, it will speak to you. Noah grew up in Vermont and New Hampshire, spent some time in Costa Rica, and is now touring eight or nine months a year coast to coast and internationally as well. Noah has a lot to say and stories to tell, and it was an honor to have him on the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to uh, Radio Free New Hampshire podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. So, so it's a long ways away here, long distance. Yeah, there's, all, there's a lot of space between <laughs> us. I don't feel very connected to you right now. <laughs> so, uh, so I just wanted to just uh, get to know you a little bit and talk about uh, whatever's going on with you and what's important to you these days. And um, there's, uh, you know, there's so much going on in the Upper Valley and in the world and in your scene and your life and. Right. You know, the whole United States of America is <laughs> in flux. and it's crazy times, man. Yeah, so you're getting a pretty interesting up. perspective, I would think. I mean, you, you grew up here locally in Vermont. Yeah, Vermont, New Hampshire. So yeah. I, uh, I spent my first six or so years in uh, Stratford, and uh, then we moved to Hanover mm-hmm. so we could be closer to the school and Hanover High School. And we, had, uh, we still have our place in, in Stratford, um, and then I moved back to Stratford uh, about seven, six years ago, so I've been kind of playing both sides a little bit, both sides of the Connecticut, and uh, yeah, I absolutely love it around here, and especially this time of year. Yeah, I grew up locally, too. I grew up in, uh, what, like, Thetford, Lyme, and Hanover. Oh, cool. Did you go to Hanover High? Yeah, I ended up going oh. to Hanover High. Yeah. Sweet. So is that where you graduated from also? I graduated Hanover High, yeah. just by the skin of my teeth. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was right there with you. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, so I grew up in a pretty, you know, um, I mean... We traveled a lot. My parents worked at Dartmouth and in the hospital and stuff. But uh, you know, growing up here, it's such a really a, a sheltered area. And uh, Absolutely. when you leave this place, I I got out by joining the military. I right. I was going to go to school at Northeastern, and then I deferred, and I just knew I wasn't going to go. Was to it college. for you? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bubble. Um, you know, even just leaving thirty minutes away, you can find very different communities that struggle with. Uh, many different issues that, that we face here in, here in the Upper Valley. The Upper Valley is a very nice place to live. It's got wonderful schools. Um, you know, I grew up with a great community, a safe community, um, and the expectation is to go to college, especially from Hanover High School where there's such a competitive environment. So uh, it was definitely kind of a sh- uh, shell shock for me to not go to school, and uh, I moved to Nashville, and being in a completely different city in the South was just such a shock, and um, I hadn't met a lot of people uh, that hadn't come from a similar place that I had. So it was definitely a different different perspective. And, uh, you know, it was a lot at first, for sure. So Nashville, why Nashville? Um, so my Nashville was kind of the natural progression for me in my career. As my manager lives in Nashville, and uh, uh, the, the publishing company I was signed to, uh, Sony, is in Nashville. And I wanted to go to where the music was. And uh, the Upper Valley is a great place. I've written many songs here and had a great time playing open mics, but there's just not a huge community of music uh, around here, um, and I needed somewhere I, where I could really grow as a musician and a songwriter, and Nashville was a, you know, kind of that dream destination for any, any budding songwriter. So I, I went to Nashville when I was 19. Um, I lived there till I was about 21, and uh, it was a wonderful time and a, a very informative 
experience for me. Now, did you like play Lower Broadway in those types of things, or was it not really that scene? Um, it wasn't so much Lower Broadway. That, that scene is crazy. Um, most of my band members are coming from the kind of Broadway, uh, Printer Street uh, scene, so it's a hardcore scene. I was more into the songwriting world. I would do a lot of sessions. I would uh, record a lot in Nashville. I played a couple venues in Nashville, but uh, I was mostly focused on just kind of progressing my songwriting and getting better at songwriting and getting ready for the, the career I was trying to have. Did you live on your own or were you with somebody else? Or? lived on my own, and uh, it was really tough. I actually, so I got a record deal when I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. I was 18 years old, and, uh, you know, you get a record deal, and you think, oh, I'll be partying with the Jonas Brothers and drinking <laughs> yeah. champagne with Nicki Minaj right, right away, and that's not at all what happens. What happened was I... I was told to go back home to Vermont and uh, figure out who I was as an artist and write songs. And it was a tough time because I was really lonely and all my friends, you know, uh, being from Hanover, had gone to these great schools and yeah. and growing up around here, I had conditioned myself for the college experience and I was ready to go to college. And um, it was definitely hard to have to kind of derail that plan and figure out who I was as a songwriter and be on my own Vermont. And so I moved to Nashville try to kind of lose that loneliness and I ended up having to live alone in Nashville too so it was it was definitely an interesting time and I had to kind of get comfortable with myself down there so you wouldn't label yourself as a country singer really by any means you're folk and I mean I've heard all sorts of different labels applied it's labels, right. labels are kind of hard to live by yeah absolutely um I wouldn't I wouldn't it's definitely not country so there's more than a country scene down there right Nashville yeah. um it's kind of been uh pigeonholed as a uh, as a country music town and obviously that's where its greatest reputation comes you have Grand Ole Opry of course and you know uh, the Ryman and all these famous country singers coming from Nashville but there's actually a really wonderful uh, pop music scene and folk music scene in Nashville and these yeah. producers are coming from LA where it's incredibly expensive uh, to Nashville where it's relatively affordable and kind of starting little communities of of that genre there so I was I was fortunate enough to find some of the guys that were doing that and uh and uh, find a pop folk community in Nashville where country is so prevalent. That's pretty cool. What, what was that like for you, I mean, just personally leaving this area and going down to, I mean, when I left this area, I moved to, well, first I went to basic training in um, uh, Alabama, Anniston, Alabama. Wow. And, like I'd never seen a Golden Damn. Corral before, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Shoney's and all these places. Yeah, you know, that like pilot the, gas station. Everything's like, oh, on damn. food scene, you know? So, <laughs> But, uh, they eat down there, bro. I oh, gained yeah, like twenty five yeah. pounds. Of yeah. It's uh, it was it was hard, man. I mean, you went to Hanover. You know, you grew up with these people. Like I, the friends I had in Hanover, I'd known since I was like ten years old, yeah. and I was eighteen when I left. So it's a long time, and uh, you know, having to make new friends and be in a place by myself and kind of create a community was hard for sure. Um, I also gained like like I said, like 15 pounds in my first like two months there. And it was like, holy shit. I guess it was like my freshman 15. Yeah, right. Uh, but I, yeah, was, the food is super unhealthy. <laughs> like it's like all hot chicken and, and yeah. like beer. And I was living, I was trying to just kind of dive into the scene as much as I could. And uh, it was definitely difficult at first, but the friends I made, uh, I've been friends for life so far. And um, it was it was definitely rewarding to kind of go somewhere on my own and prove to myself that I could create a community for myself, make friends for myself and put myself out there. Because I didn't really ever have to do that while I was... Yeah, I think that's a lot of what the college experience is anyway. I mean, I, right. not having gone to college, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but that's it. You know, it's, it's getting out and, and they kind of ease you into things. I mean, you, you live in a dorm and there's, a, you know, an RA and all of that. And right. uh, so you're on your own, but it's not really, you know, 100% on your own. Whereas, you know, you just kind of jumped right into it. Yeah, I was definitely like, I was, I'd always prepare myself to go to college. And I was like, in college, I'll be able to be in communities with other people and clubs with other people and make friends and... 
when I went to Nashville, I was like, yo, you're just moving into this house in Nashville um, and, you know, go out and make some friends. And it was like, oh, I have no idea how to do that. Yeah. Um, and I never really wanted to, I kind of arrogantly assumed that I would just make friends naturally and that friends would just come to me. Um, and I really had to come to terms with the fact that I had to put myself out there and actually go out and, and do things and and uh, find communities for myself instead of just expecting them to form around me. So yeah, and so you were. I mean, you're not an old man. You're 22. So. 22. Yeah. And so this <laughs> yeah, is fairly, this is fairly recent history. Right. Yeah. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was great. I feel like I grew. I matured a lot in that year, though. Just being sure. like kind of a gut check of like, all right, loneliness sucks, and I don't want to be lonely anymore, and I want to make some friends, and if that means I need to put myself out there more and be more open minded to different activities and different things, then I then I'll do it. So. Yeah, you know, I think, but um, I, I don't know what your experience was, but uh, the closest I've come is singing karaoke. And, uh, you know, when you go to do karaoke and you, uh, um, and you go up that first time and you're nervous and he's looking at you and, and you, 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 people tend to be reserved, you know, and you, yeah. you hold back a lot and, and you're not your best self. And then finally, after you've done it a few times, you start to realize, you look around and you think, you realize, you know, these people that are really having fun with it, that are yeah. that sound great, whether they sound really good or not musically, right. you know, that are just having a blast. Enjoying people, it. Yeah, they just let it all out and they let right. it go. And and what was that? I mean, that musically, you grew up doing open mic. Yep. And that takes a lot of uh, balls to get out there and put yourself in front of people. Yeah, it was music and performing has been one of those things I've just always loved. My first ever performance was at a. I was at Kendall. It was my dad and I were playing. We played "Father and Son" by Cat Stevens. It was the first time I ever performed, and like the feeling was so cool. We sounded like shit. We were awful, terrible. But it was so cool to be able to like be in front of people and like have the kind of the room watching you do something you love. And uh, I just wanted to find as many opportunities to do that as I could. And uh, I guess I had a I had a surplus of confidence as a young man playing these open mics because mm. I didn't sound very good, but I would just love to get out there and play and hear myself in the speaker and see other people paying attention and being able to play these songs that I love live. Um, so I never, I never really dealt with the stage fright in terms of just performing. What freaked me out was when I would play at school talent shows because mm -hmm. I was afraid of my friends finding yeah, out peers, thinking I was yeah. bad and, and people that I would have to see every day. And um, you know, It's a real exposing environment to be in is, is showing someone that you're vulnerable uh, on stage. You're sure. the most vulnerable person in the world. Everyone else is in a position where they're hidden. And you're the one that everyone's looking at. And that was hard for me at first. And uh, I think it's just doing it and getting out there and kind of facing the fear. And the feeling afterwards when you face the fear is is what makes the next time worth it for me. Um, and that was Kendall, yeah. the old folks home, Kendall? Or is that something else? Kendall, yeah. Kendall, the first show I ever did was Kendall, the old folks home. The retirement home, yeah. With my dad. And then the next show I did was at my uh, elementary school talent show. And I sang a song I wrote called Wednesdays are the Worst Days of My Life. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> completely acapella and everyone was stunned silent I was like man I just killed that I'm great I get to my room <laughs> and the school therapist comes in and I have to do a week of mandatory sessions because the song was so depressing so, yeah. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I knew I was I was destined for a career in writing so yeah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah do you do you write also like uh do you write uh outside of music do you write poetry or I grew up writing a lot of poetry my mom's an author and mm -hmm. so I was I was kind of I grew up with writing being a big focus in the household and it was what I was best at in school and I loved I loved writing short stories and mm -hmm. and writing poems um so yeah I, I, I kind of just love writing and being able to express myself uh through writing so I've always yeah. done that yeah and then tying that in with music you got a whole other yeah it was I was always songwriting was always my biggest goal uh but just having the ability to 
access my mom as a resource, mm-hmm. someone that's a professional. She's a best-selling author, and so I was. That's, that's great. Yeah, it was, she, it was great. I was able to kind of write these stories and get her opinion on them. And I, she was kind of, she was, it was a lot of tough love with the writing, which actually I really I didn't like at the time because it hurt, but I really <laughs> appreciate it now because it made me a lot better. Uh, yeah. So I was always writing in the house, and my mom was always kind of critiquing and helping me out. And uh, that's so when I started writing songs, it was uh, I had some experience on my belt. Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. So um, from Nashville, you went to where? So Nashville, I um, I started. I, re- I wrote the songs in Nashville, and I would kind of bounce between Nashville and Los Angeles in terms of recording and writing. Um, and I released my first song in January of 2017 when I was living in Nashville. And then I started to hit the road, and I was touring a lot. I think I did about five months of 2017 on the road and eight months of 2016 on the road, I believe. Wow. So it didn't make much sense for me to be paying rent in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe it or not, musicians make no money at all. So that's not, not at least not at the level I'm at. So I was kind of unable to afford my place in Nashville while being on the road so much. It just didn't make sense for me anymore. So I moved out. I moved back home, and I kind of lived between Stratford and the road. Um, so the LA move was that something that the record company suggested, or um, well, or? LA was really just a resource full of uh, producers yeah. and songwriters. So I would kind of go to LA, I'd get like an Airbnb, and uh, yeah, I'd write I'd write songs out there and record out there, and then head back to Nashville or head back to Vermont. So I never really lived in LA. It's, oh gosh, yeah, I'm definitely not attractive enough to live in LA. I figured <laughs> I figured that out when I when I got there. I was like, oh my god, every person I see is the most beautiful person in the world. Yeah, it's like if if those people came back to to Vermont, they'd be killing it. So <laughs> I was one of our daughters lives in L.A. and and she's she's all right because she she's yeah. <laughs> a pretty girl. Yeah. yeah, it's hard, man. It's hard for a, a dude with a big nose, big nose Jewish guy in L.A. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in New York, where I'm living now, I'm like an eight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know. I haven't got that far yet. Yeah. You do great for yourself, man. All right. Um, so that 2017, what was that first song you released? It's called Young Blood. Okay, I've heard it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting release because I had been, like I said, at home in Nashville writing songs and figuring out what I wanted to do. And the first single is kind of a, a big thing, I guess, because mm-hmm. it's your first introduction. It's the world's first, uh, it's the first time they're hearing you, and first time, first impression they're gonna have of you. And it's your introduction to your fan base and your potential fan base and all the people you've been telling that you've been doing music to who didn't believe you and sure. <laughs> all the people back home were like, well. What's, what are you up to these days, man? It's like, I swear I'm doing music. So uh, it was a big moment for me. And uh, the song came about because I had written a lot of songs and we weren't really coming up with anything we really liked. And I wrote the first chorus and verse to Young Blood and I sent it to my management and they were like, uh, I don't know. Uh, then I played it for a friend of mine who was also at home kind of figuring out who he was. And he was like, I love this song. I really connect with it. And I think that you need to push this song uh, to your management and just tell them that you're doing it. And... So I went to LA and I recorded it with this wonderful producer, uh, Joel Little, and we recorded Young Blood, and sent it to my management. They're like, "Oh wow, okay, maybe we were wrong about this song. We really like it." So we released it, and it kind of, uh, yeah, it kind of, kind of took off, and a lot of people connected with it. It's still like a fan favorite and probably my favorite song I've written. Yeah, I heard it today again. You know, and it's it's a great yeah. tune. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Um, what uh, so nowadays? I don't know what it's like anymore. We, you know, in the past, we're, I'm I'm a lot older than you. I'm 20. I don't know five years older than you, um, I would have asked you, I guess, when you first heard yourself on the radio, but what is it nowadays? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the radio is still the coolest one yeah. because like you can just press your name on Spotify and stuff, so it's not that exciting. But <laughs> I've heard myself on the radio a couple times, and it's just so crazy. Uh, it's pretty inexplicable. It almost feels weird, that first feeling of being like, that's my voice. And it just got played between like a Lumineers song and a Bob Dylan song. It's insane to be... Yeah. I guess not. I accompany these amazing artists and part of the culture of, you know, music right now. You're on the radio, which means that people want to hear what you have to say, and mm -hmm. your song's doing well, and it just makes it all the all the kind of the BS you go through getting here worth it. Um, Did you know it was coming up, or like were they telling you you're going to have you know pl play on this station or anything like that? Or um, it's a lot of times it's been random. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know. When a radio station starts playing your song, they add it, and you get kind of notified by your record label or whoever's managing you that the station added it. But you never know when they're gonna play it. And right. so I would sit in my car and I just drive. <laughs> I just drive around. I drive around like Lebanon and Hanover with the point on. I'd be like, oh, maybe they're gonna play it. And then I would like hear it come up when I least expected it, and I would just lose my mind. That's cool. So cool, man. It's definitely like the coolest feeling ever. So your biggest hit so far is what? I think if I had a big hit. I think I heard somebody did really well, yeah. uh, but I haven't had like a hit in America. I've had heard somebody was a number one song in Australia, <laughs> which was really interesting. Uh, it was a kind of a kind of a curveball in, in the career, you know. Uh, with Spotify these days, you put the music out and you don't really have control over who listens to it, yeah. and uh, it just really impacted in Australia. And <laughs> it became a number one song in Australia for three weeks, so I had to fly over there a ton and tour in Australia, a place that I never really oh, otherwise would have gone. drag, huh? Yeah. Very inconvenient. 20-hour yeah. <laughs> flight. I can't deal with it, man. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was awesome. Like, the opportunity to go to Australia like four times in 2017 and 18 was, was awesome. Yeah, my 20-hour flights were to Korea, so I would take Australia <laughs> any day over there. Hey, man. What was Australia like? Is it pretty cool to be there? Dude, it's awesome. People I mean, are nice? People are... It's, it's pretty similar to America. I, th I think yeah. in, the, in the kind of the people are all... They're a little drier and woodier, uh, which I think is great because mm -hmm. I love like a dry sense of humor. Um, but it's just beautiful, man. Like the coast is beautiful there, and the nature is obviously, you know, unbelievable. And being being by the ocean, yeah. And uh, just it's just a really cool place. And then I never really otherwise would have been to Australia or been going to Australia. So uh, having kind of a song that do well there, bringing me there all the time was was really interesting and cool. It was also the only time I've ever felt like really like, like I was famous. Like yeah. there would be like paparazzi yeah. at the airport when I would get there, yeah. which was insane, and I loved it too. Like usually in the videos you see people like ducking, like get away from me. Like I'm just trying to join my time. I was like, yo, let's go, guys, come on, follow me. That's this cool. Is yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so it was cool, man. It was it was really really fun. I uh, I wanna I wanna do more music down there and get back there because it's an awesome place. That's that's really neat. Yeah, I, I mean I've heard uh, heard somebody organically like I was at Jesse's restaurant. Yeah, you know, right. Maybe. Right. A month ago, and uh, it was just, just on. Came on. You know? Yeah, so that's pretty cool. It's crazy, man. You kind of, you kind of like. I hate getting used to the feeling of people being like, "Hey, I heard your song on the radio." It's like you don't want to ever get used to that feeling. It's such a unique, special thing, and you never know when it's going to happen again. So I try to like cherish every time I hear my music out in public. It's so cool. So uh, when you first started touring, like, what were those venues like? So the first tour I ever did, I was opening up for this band, the Strombellas, um, who are like a really awesome Canadian folk band um it was my first ever tour and we were playing in uh, about 1100 to 1500 uh, capacity venues which was insane because the biggest show i'd ever done was at murano gelato in hanover for <laughs> about 45 people so it was a huge change and uh 
I, was, I pretended in my head like I was ready for it, but like looking back, I was totally not ready for it. I was mm. nervous. I would like lose my voice because I sang so hard and, and with so many nerves. Um, it was insane. It was insane touring the country and playing the shows and being in front of that many people. It was crazy. Yeah, that's that's a big step up. Yeah, it was like getting paid in gelato and then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly seeing 1,500 faces in front of me was was pretty insane. Um, I'll always remember that tour. I think the first tour is always the most special one and I'll yeah. always, always remember that. And now what is it like for you now? You're, you're doing... Uh, I mean, 1,500 is still a decent-sized venue. What, what is the, the one in Burlington? Higher ground. Higher ground. How big is that? I think it's 970. Yeah. Um, so when that... What's cool is I'm now doing... So that was an opening room with Strumbellas, mm-hmm. and now two years later, I'm headlining those same venues, yeah. which is really cool. And it's I've been able to see the progress, and I used to play those venues with the Strumbellas and be like, man, I cannot believe all these people are here. Hope someday that I can do that. And now mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm doing it, and it's really cool to have that perspective of being like, I started out here, and now I'm headlining here. So I'm... I'm doing like 1,500 capacity rooms, kind of 800 to 1,000 venues all over the place. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them are selling out, which is insane. It's crazy to like sell out a venue in in like Chicago. Yeah. I have no one I know in Chicago in my life. I have been there twice. And to have 1,000 people uh, spend money to come see my show there is really cool. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely grown a lot. And I've been on the I was on the road opening up for two years. So the grind that I did and the hustle I had to put in to get here has been worth it. I think so far. Yeah, and you're still working hard now. I mean. Yeah, yeah, man. It's hard. It's hard work. I mean, it doesn't feel like hard work. So you're just doing you're doing what you love. But a lot of the times, so you take a second to breathe and think about the travel and the kind of energy and the focus you have to put into it. It's definitely. It's definitely taxing emotionally. And you don't have an entourage that's going around with you either, so a lot of this is on your own, right? I know, man. I don't know how all these rappers do it. Yeah. I'm like, yo, guys, come on, come to the studio, man. I'm going to write a song about anxiety today. And they're like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I, I have my band who have become close with me, but it's definitely like, it's definitely kind of a lonely experience sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people that understand the lifestyle or understand the travel commitments, and it takes a lot out of you, and... Um, you know, people are like, well, you're living your dream. You're doing what you love, you know, and that can be hard. So it's kind of, you don't feel like you have an excuse for the the shittiness you're sure. feeling. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, pardon my language. But, uh, you know, <laughs> not a, <laughs> so not, a little not a problem, explicit yeah. sign on you're there. Okay, yeah. yeah, sometimes I feel like people don't, not, not, it's not, it's not their fault, but sometimes that people, people can't really fully understand what I, what I do have to go through sometimes for this, for this career to be a reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that can be a little isolating for sure. Well, the perception about the money too, you know? Yeah. It's different because, I mean, I don't even know how you guys make money other than shows and a little bit of merch, right? That's it. That's really it, man. Yeah. I mean, radio doesn't pay much. Spotify doesn't pay anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 70% of the money you make as an artist is from touring and from merch. Yeah. And uh, and the only way to make money is by being on the road all the time. Uh, and it's definitely not a glamorous kind of enriching lifestyle at the level I'm at. I mean, the... The, the money these huge artists are making are from endorsements and from yeah. their enormous shows and, and you know, from being already successful and getting there. such a You're kind of Sisyphus. You're just pushing the, the boulder up the hill and having it roll back down on you. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's the right Greek person that I named, but if that is, then damn. <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't go to college. Neither so, of us yeah. went to college, yeah. man. Yeah. So in, Four in letter the, words for yeah. us only. <laughs> and your CDs, uh, it's a whole different ballgame now because, uh, like, uh, one of my stories, I was in a bar in El Paso and... 1994 and uh and there was this band playing and and i liked the song and i went up and bought a cd and they all signed it and it was a country band it was um toby keith and should have been a cowboy 
oh. they were just playing some bar. You know, they were, he was from El Paso. We played a lot in El Paso. And, wow. Uh, and so that was really cool. And, and they were selling CDs and, you know, T-shirts. And, of course, Man. that was the game back then. But now, I mean, almost everything's digital download, right? I mean, what percentage of your music that, I mean, do people even buy digitally anymore? Or is it all just streaming? Um, people, it's, it's definitely not as much as they used to. People still do buy CDs and buy hard copies and vinyl. I think mm -hmm. vinyl's coming back, which is cool, because kind of people are like, it's almost like a piece of art to have yeah. uh, a vinyl record. Um, digitally, I don't think digital downloads are as, as common or as, you know, yeah, they're just not as common as they were. Uh, people don't really buy off like Apple or like App, iTunes. It's mostly Apple Music streaming, yeah. Spotify streaming, Tidal, Amazon Yeah, they're music. shutting down iTunes is the word. Yeah, I think they are, yeah, yeah which sucks. I feel like every day... And, I make less money. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I always I always respect the people that buy CDs and buy uh, buy vinyl. Oh, I, just, I love vinyl. Yeah. Vinyl's yeah. the best, man. I've, I've, people, yeah. More people should get record players and buy vinyl. Absolutely. It's kind yeah. of yeah. It's kind of a pain in the ass to like carry a vinyl record around, but man, it's cool. It doesn't like, fit on my shoulder very well. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I do. Um, you know, of course, the streaming. Uh, I use Apple Music, and right. uh, but then I do. I buy vinyl and. Uh, anytime that an artist that I like uh, is releasing something, I always try to grab it on vinyl right off the bat. Yeah, you know it supports the artist, and you know that money's a lot of that money is the only money that artists will make uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases. So, yeah, my friends, I always try to get my friends to buy my songs. Yeah. they're like, yeah, I heard your song on Spotify. I'm like, really? Why don't you buy the Why don't you buy the record, man? <laughs> you know, if you what's really it, care. What's it been like uh, maintaining you know relationships and friendships and all that while you're touring? Because you're touring eight or nine months a year right now still. Yeah, and you've been you've done some European stuff too. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, European stuff, obviously the Australian tours, uh, a lot of the stuff in the States and Canada. Um, it's been interesting. I've, I think a lot of my friends, I've, I've stayed close with many of my friends from back home, and they've been incredibly supportive. Uh, I've definitely had some friendships that have been tested to mm -hmm. just lack of communication, and, um, you know, it's hard, man. It's hard, to, it's, hard to, it's hard to stay in touch with anybody after you leave your hometown, but especially when... Um, you're kind of living a drastically different lifestyle. Yeah. You know, a lot of my friends are in school and kind of taking a, doing great, important things, but taking more of a traditional path based on where we're from. Uh, so it's hard for me to connect with a lot of people on a, you know, on a personal level because I'm touring and in the music career and they're, you know, getting degrees from college. So it's been hard, but I think that having that kind of understanding that our lives are different and finding a common thread in what, and in, in what we feel and what we think, uh, has been has has maintained a lot of my relationships. So, yeah. I've stayed close with a lot of my friends, and I keep in touch with people I knew from high school all the time. And yeah, do your parents come out to see you on the road at all? Or? Yeah, they do. Um, my That's... mom comes to a lot of my shows. My dad does not like leaving Stratford, but he comes. <laughs> he's coming to my Burlington show. <laughs> He actually bought a VIP package to my, uh, a meet and greet package to my Burlington show, which I think is absolutely hilarious. That's great, because yeah. <laughs> Because we're going to get dinner before the show, and mm -hmm. he's going to be in line with like a bunch of like 17-year-old girls uh, at a meet and greet. He's going to get like a photo with me. Hey, that's be dedication, so... man. That's really great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's like, yo, what's, a, what's my personalized t-shirt going to look like? He's like, I've got a bunch of questions for you. And I know he's going to bring up some embarrassing shit of course, that yeah. I don't want to answer. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, they... They're very supportive. They come out to shows all the time. My mom's coming to see me in Denmark. Wow. London. She's come to uh, New York, Boston, mm -hmm. Burlington. You know, whenever I'm in New England, she'll come see me. And yeah, it's cool because she used to drive me to 
uh, Burlington and to Woodstock and to Queechy to play mm. open mics all the time. So and now she's driving to Denmark. Yeah, yeah. she's like, damn, it's such a bigger pain in the ass. I wish you were, I wish you were still playing Skunk Hollow, brother. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I love Skunk Hollow. Carlos? Yeah, yeah. that's just such a spot, yeah. man. Such yeah. a great spot. I used to play Wednesdays there all the time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, all the time, man. That's a great spot. There's some great open mic spots around here. Mm-hmm. I've always thought that Gusano should do open mic, man. Yeah. Yeah, we looked at it. We used to do, uh, we used to have Carlos play here every Monday for a while. Oh, yeah? And uh, it's just tough. Uh, really, it came down to insurance. Right. They, yeah. Our insurance agency came in and said that they were going to jack us up ten thousand a year in oh, insurance. Really? And yeah, and uh, so we had to make some tough decisions. Yeah. But yeah. But we used to do a lot of live music when we had our Woodstock location. We did live music there. I think twice a week at the peak. And oh, sweet. Yeah, we we really get into the scene. We just um, it's just hard to host it these days with all the additional costs. Yeah, I can unless imagine. unless you're big enough to make it worthwhile. But if it's right. just a small room. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. They jack up all these other you know, ancillary costs. That makes sense. Yeah, man. I mean, just having it be a cool restaurant and having live music there makes it a makes it a would make it a cool destination. I wish I had yeah. been able to play some of the Woodstock ones, man. Was that was that in recent history? Two thousand six, two thousand seven. When we were doing Woodstock. Okay. Yeah. I was still singing Wednesday was the worst days in my yeah. life. I would have brought the mood down in the room. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so when you're touring and, and you're doing all this stuff, I mean, how do you maintain, like, uh, you know, a personal life? Because it's a go, go, go atmosphere, right? And I mean, do you get to go out when you're in Chicago? Do you get to go out when you're... Yeah. And, 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 and you know, see the... See the... see Kind of see the, the cities and, and stuff. That, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a learning process in terms of maintaining personal life and health and kind of sanity almost on the road mm-hmm. when we were for the past two years we've been in a sprinter van with six people you know driving for hours before the show and driving hours after the show to mm-hmm. get to the halfway to the next venue america's huge dude i mean i never knew i was, I was in new england my entire life and everything's kind of close together it's like boston's two hours away you're like, you know? oh, i gotta go to boston yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now i'm driving from like denver to nebraska or, yeah. or chicago to nebraska or you know, Portland to LA, and it's, the country is so big, and there's so much travel needed to get to these venues, and you're playing three shows in a row, or three shows for three days in a row, and you need to get to each one on time, so mm. it can be hard to kind of get time to explore the city, and to see things, and you know, I would, I've been to Chicago four times, and I've never been outside of the radius of two miles within the venue I've been mm. playing in, so um, until now, where we've got a tour bus, and we're about to kind of be able to Drive overnight, park in the morning, and explore the city. We've it's been a lot of hustle. So no more sprinter van. You got you're upgrading. No more sprinter van. No more hemorrhoids, man. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be good. It's our first. It's our first tour with a tour bus. We're all super excited. And We've, that's just stateside, though. Stateside, yeah. yeah. Um, stateside in Canada, but mm-hmm. it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot more fun because we're gonna be able to see the world a little bit and not kind of be stuck driving and you know the stress the stress of being the one that has to drive it. 2 a.m. after a show yeah. can really change the vibe. So we're excited for the bus. Um, yeah, and in terms of, like, health and sleep, um, the first couple tours I went out and I was, you know, I was just exci- I was so excited by the idea of the energy in the room and after the show, the energy of the fans and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, like, trying to, like, keep building on the energy I had during the show. And I would go out or we would, like, go hang out and we'd be exhausted the next day. Or I wouldn't be able to sing the next day because I was screaming at the venue while the headlining act was up the next day. And yeah. uh, that was something I had to learn is kind of picking your nights that you want to go out and have fun and picking the amount of talking you can do after the show and the kind of the amount of hanging out you can do after the show because it can affect the next day. And it's a real marathon on the road uh, and not a sprint. So you want to, as fun and energetic as those 
hour, 45-minute sets can be. You need to kind of find a way to bring yourself down after and, um, and uh, kind of focus and maintain yourself so you don't uh, burn out. Do you get to work out a lot of new music when you're on the road? Um, or do you mostly play... You know, it depends on the set. Usually, when we're opening up, it's a lot of it's a lot of just play the songs that have performed well and that mm-hmm. people know, um, and kind of get out of there. But on the headline shows, you gotta you gotta work out new songs and play new songs and uh, kind of test them out, get them road tested, which I love because um, you don't have an opportunity a lot to get a completely fresh perspective on a new thing you've been working on. So, going out on the road when you're opening when you're headlining is cool because you gotta play a new thing and see if people like it or not and get back and work on it and make it better or scrap it. So, yeah. Do you have time to write when you're out? I traditionally have not had a lot of time to write, uh, but that's mostly just because I've kind of been either burnt out, exhausted, mm-hmm. sick, um, or just, yeah, just sleeping. So this next tour, this next tour uh, which we're leaving on in about two weeks, uh, we're going to be bringing a little studio set up. I'm going to try to write some songs and record some music on the road. That's, that's cool. the goal, yeah. Where do you write best when you go home to Stratford? Or? Yeah, I write, I write best in Stratford. I just feel really grounded and connected to myself and like my feelings there. And um, but uh, a lot of the times I write, I come up with really great ideas when I'm when I'm stressed out or if I'm on, if I'm traveling a lot, you know, because you're kind of not in the process of trying to come up with something. It kind of just mm-hmm. pours out of you, and then I'll come back home and I'll kind of refine it and and uh, flush out the idea so it's more completed. But Stratford's where I. I, I feel most comfortable creating. You make notes or you record it or what do you do? Yeah, lots of little notes and lots of recordings. All, mm-hmm. all the times I'll do like a recording in like a busy street or something like that and I'll be like, nah, nah, nah. I can't, and like I'll listen to it two weeks later and be like, I don't know what I was talking about. I can't remember that shit at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was bad. So yeah. It sounded great at the time. You're like, this is it. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. you're like, I have to do it or else I'm going to forget it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll do, I'll do little notes and um, I'll kind of like write down little things I like and do little voice memos. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, your music that you write, I mean, a lot of it, I, I love the localization. You know, I think right. Mess, yeah. you talk about, you know, taking 89 to Boston. Yeah. Coming home and you'll promise to feed the dog. And yeah, right. I like to keep home with me. It's such an, this is such an important place to me. The Upper Valley is so important to me. Yeah. Uh, my family is so important to me. My pups are important to me. Where I'm from is is who I am, I think, in a lot of ways. And I like to bring that into my music because... I think being personal and honest is what I think makes my music unique, or at least to me. Um, and I try to be as real as possible in that. And um, I also want to address something now that I'm on the podcast. Um, people have been complaining to me about how 89 doesn't go to Boston, but y'all are idiots. 89 goes to where I need to go to get to Boston. <laughs> people, I was playing a show in Gloucester, Gloucester, Massachusetts, and they're like, it's 93 mm-hmm. to Boston, man. And I was like, yeah, I know it's 93 to Boston, but I have to get on 89 to get to 93. And 93 to Boston does not sing very well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I agree with you. <laughs> so that's just a PSA for the folks out there that have been that have been mad at me. Hey, if you're it. from this area, it's 89. Yeah, and everyone around me is like, yeah, we yeah. know it's 89, man. We got, you. Yeah. <laughs> we got you. We got you. Do you bump into people like when you're out you know, other parts of the country, other parts of the world even, that uh, know you're from New England, know you're from this area, or they don't really know where you're coming from yet? Or? A lot of people, some people do, and that's yeah. always super cool. And someone will be like, dude, I like went to school in like Northeastern or like yeah. out UVM. And that's always so cool, especially because like, I'm, when you travel for a while and you just feel really foreign and you feel far away from, from home and, and uh, having someone say they're from Vermont mm-hmm. or they know somebody you know is just so cool and you feel like 
you feel a little less homesick, a little more connected. So yeah, it's almost yeah. like tribal in a way. I remember like being overseas and bumping into somebody from Vermont, or, yeah, or even like you know Connecticut. Yeah, right. It's pushing it. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah well, we're from New England. You'll give yeah. it to them if you depends how far away. You right. Are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. It is. It really is tribal around here, and and it's a very unique perspective around here, and and New England is such a unique place, and it's kind of for better or for worse. New Englanders are New Englanders, and seeing people. Uh, out kind of in, in the wild of the world, seeing people from New England is, is cool, and you feel like you can connect with them. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised that that's all you got when you're down in Gloucester. They're like, oh, you fucking idiot. You know? <laughs> there was a little bit of that, too. Yeah, there was a little... mother, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, uh, I said I was playing mess, and there's a line in mess that's, uh, I'll take I, I'll take 89 to Boston. I was like, listen, guys, if you guys don't sing this line, I'm going to change it to Philly. And they were all mm. pissed off at me. It was really funny. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um Carlos, who's Carlos? Uh, Carlo is or uh, was my one of my best friends from. It's Carlo, not Carlos. Carlo, yes, yeah, yeah. confusing. Um, no, no, I think I just wrote it down. Carlos song. Right, yeah, I was like, there's an apostrophe. Yeah, um, yeah Carlo was a was a, a guy that I, I met when I was a sophomore in high school. He moved to Hanover, and he became really really close with me and all my friends, um, and I became really close with him. And uh, he was just the coolest dude ever. He had super long hair. Um, and he was a surfer and skier and was an outdoorsman at his heart and uh, had a really wild free spirit. He would like longboard everywhere. He didn't have a car. He would just longboard all over the place from Norwich into Hanover. And, um, he wasn't, he was, it wasn't like a traditional person and I really connected with his spirit. He didn't care about what people thought about him Mm -hmm. and we just became really close. You know, we would, we would go out on the weekends and camp and drink together and hang out and, he loved fireworks and and uh, dirt biking and skiing and I don't know. He's just a special person and uh, uh, tragically passed away two years ago in, in May um, from kind of sudden illness and mm-hmm. it was really really hard and I'd never lost anybody before at all that I that I knew and cared about and let alone someone I was really close with and it just hit me really hard and uh, yeah it was it was it was a really tough time and I think I lost. A little bit of myself when he died and I wanted to I like to write music when I'm feeling that way and I wanted to honor his memory and write a song about the last time I saw him uh, we hiked up to Guile Guile Mountain even the fire tower in Guile I was going to ask if it was Cardigan because I heard the fire tower line uh, yeah, yeah Cardigan Towers Guile yeah. uh, over in Norwich and we hiked up Guile and uh, you know he was just doing he was just it was like the most classic Carlo day ever he loved like really weird local craft brews and brought some IPAs and he loved playing Jack White out of a speaker and we were listening to Jack White as we hiked up and he was like swearing and yelling the whole time and other people coming down the trail were like oh my god these fucking assholes <laughs> and so we were, we were walking up and uh, we looked out over the upper valley over uh, you know the sun, there was a sunset and it was I think it was October and uh, it was peak foliage it was so beautiful we were drinking and listening to music and uh, yeah, it was the last time I ever saw him. So I wanted to write a song about how special that moment was to mm-hmm. me and how much it meant. And, uh, you know, that's like my favorite song I've ever written. And it connects with people and his family likes it. And I don't know. It's just a way for me to, it's a way for me to uh, remember him. And music is, is my memory. And I always remember Carlos. So he was mm-hmm. a man. Yeah, he actually, he actually ate a good song a couple times. Oh, did Yeah, you? yeah. <laughs> he, he was awesome, dude. He was, a, he was a great guy. And I miss him very, very much. It's a powerful song. Thanks, man. Yeah, that it's 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 very real to me and very personal to me, and I don't know. Do you play it? Yeah, we play it on the road. I play it everywhere I go. It's my it's my favorite part of the set because it's a it's like 
it's something that will always feel like um, feel like I'm honoring him. It always feels like I'm remembering him and, and kind of conjuring him up a little bit when I play it. Um, and it f- makes me feel like I'm with him again or at home again. And uh, I play it when I'm feeling lost and, and uh, hearing people sing it back to me and connect with it in their own lives when people they've lost or people they loved um, and aren't in touch with anymore uh, makes it worth it. And it just makes me feel less, like, shitty about it because it never, the pain doesn't really go away. And But it, when I play it, I get, a, I get some like, catharsis from it. So, yeah, I, special to me for sure. Yeah, you can feel it when you hear it in the recording. Thanks, I can imagine man, live man. it must be. Yeah. more powerful. Yeah, man. It's special for sure for me. It's my, it's my favorite song. Yeah, he was a man. You mentioned, I think you mentioned a Billy Joel song in there too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's Carlos' song, right? Yeah, he loved, he loved Billy Joel. We were listening, I listened to Billy Joel a lot. I was listening to Only the Good Die Young. And yeah, was, yeah. Yeah. He's just one of those people that I can't imagine him, you know, he, I can't imagine him. It's weird, you know, like I, I would love nothing more for him to be here, but I can't imagine him being anyone else, anyone else than he was at 20 years old. Uh, in Vermont, longboarding around and drinking, and drinking, you know, he just—he's just one of those people that was like an, an enigma, and one of those people that I can't characterize and I can't imagine who he would be today. But no. yeah, I don't know. He was—he was the greatest. Well, forever twenty, right? Forever twenty, man. Yeah, yeah. only the good die young. It's true. <laughs> the um, uh, pain that you experience. Does that translate to better art? Because you're somebody, and just I've listened to a couple of interviews that you've done. You talked about, uh, um, you know, going through various levels of depression and, yeah. uh, at different times in your life. Does that? Do you think that that's an important component to your writing? Unfortunately, I think it is really important in my writing, and um, you know, the the feeling of pain. Uh, it's something really I think that people can connect with, and when I'm feeling in pain, the the only way to make it a little better is is to write, and it gives me a perspective on on life. Um, I wish I think that if I was just happy all the time and and kind of floating through life, I don't think I would have a very interesting perspective, you know. Um, and I think feeling that pain and feeling the lows um, gives you a more uh, more gratification when you're when you're in a better place and when you're feeling better. Um, and and it's, it's kind of it's kind of the unfortunate conundrum for an artist is um, having to live with this pain, but having it be the thing that inspires what people love about your art. Um, and I don't mean to sound pretentious, but uh, yeah, Van, Van Gogh said, "Great, great artists suffer." Um, and I I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to be in pain. I don't want to experience mental illness, but it definitely plays a major role in in the creation of my music and. Um, and it, and it allows it allows me to feel catharsis through my songs. So yeah, there's definitely pain involved in the creation of the music, and um, it's it's the pain that creates the music also allows me a little a little uh, relief from it too. And, and when yeah. I've created something and made something I'm proud of, so it's it's kind of a weird, toxic, abusive relationship with my brain. So yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think um, you know there's a lot of talk these days about like antidepressants versus. Um, other avenues of uh, working through depression. You know, there's um, people say exercise or you know art, and there's a lot of different ways to get through those those times. Yeah, um, yeah. I've I took I've taken off and on. I've taken antidepressants for a long time. Mm. Um, I I 
I think there's a stigma around taking antidepressants that I think is really un- unhealthy for a lot of people. You know, exercise, counseling, meditation, diet, you know. You think the stigma is unhealthy or taking I, antidepressants? No, I, both, think, I think the stigma against taking them is, yeah. is unhealthy. Because I, th- I think there are many ways that you can treat depression and anxiety, but there's no cure-all for, for everybody. And some people cannot function without antidepressants, without the serotonin that antidepressants give them. And, you know, you can exercise all you want for some mm-hmm. people. And you can meditate. That, that might not do it. And having there be this kind of um, stigma and, and taboo mentality around taking a drug to make yourself happier is is dangerous or talking about it even it used to be yeah. i think it's more open now it used to be totally out yeah it used to be like you're crazy and prozac is going to make you kill people and yeah. violent it's it's really it's really sucks and it, it deterred me for a long time from getting taking the drug and, and, mm-hmm. and it helped me tremendously and uh I, i'm i'm now off it but uh taking it got me out of a really dark place and yeah. what, what it does i think for a lot of people is it kind of gives you that chemical boost that allows you to get off it and then start living in a different way and start living with the counseling and health and being healthier, but it gives you a chance to kind of zap yourself into into a more proactive mode. Um, yeah, I think I think it's dangerous that people talk about antidepressants in such a negative way. Um, I don't think that there's something you should just go right into without thinking about them, but I definitely don't think it's something you shouldn't consider based on society's perspective on on them at all. You think it affects creativity in taking them? It's it's interesting, man. I can't say for sure. I, I think, it, like I said, I think it goes case for case. But it definitely, if it affected my creativity in that it didn't allow me to, it didn't give me, I didn't have the constant fear of not creating when I was on antidepressants. It's, it's kind of fucked up. But I was, I was like content when I was on them. I felt like I was able to just go through my life and be okay and I wasn't worried all the time. And part of that, part of my worry is, is this drive to create and this worry about not creating music and... When I was taking the antidepressants, I felt like I wasn't worrying about making music, and then I was kind of just okay with it. Uh, and when I'm not on them, I'm constantly worried, so I'm constantly writing and trying to kind of beat <laughs> that worry. Uh, it's really neurotic. But uh, I think I think they can have a blunting effect on creativity, but I think a lot of times, um, conversely, uh, depression can destroy your creativity as well. So it kind of depends on sure. what we're yeah. willing to live with. Uh, you know, a little bit blunted creativity by antidepressants or serious depression that destroys your love for creating at all mm-hmm. it's kind of a, it's kind of a balancing act and i think it depends on the person but i think you need to put your health before your creativity uh i think your ability to survive your life and your brain is more important than your ability to create and i think you have to prioritize live to create another day exactly man yeah. that's exactly right live to create another day make sure you can be around to create again you know and uh and if anyone listening to this at all uh, is on antidepressants or considering taking antidepressants like you know you got to do what you got to do and uh, I think it's not something you have to be on your entire life and you can get off them and get back on them whenever you want um, obviously with the guidance of a medical professional but uh, just don't be afraid of it because it can help you well I think it's tough too because there's um, you know everybody talks about it uh, access to health care is so uh uh, I don't know if it's class driven, but it's it seems to be. You know, a lot of people don't have access to health care if you're in that. Uh, if you don't have health insurance, or even if you do, the deductibles are so high these days. It's tough, and, and access to mental health care is really tough. It's hard to find. Yeah. You know, someone to talk to. It's hard to get into a program. It's hard around here, man. The yeah. mental health, kind of the mental health counseling, and and you know, I've been blessed to have a good health health care plan through my parents, mm-hmm. which has been great. But uh, even just finding a counselor around here can be really difficult. Um, 
finding someone that's available and local. I, I have, I, when I was seeing a counselor around here, it was like an hour and a half away. I'd have to drive really, to go yeah. see somebody, and it just wasn't enough. I didn't have enough time to do that, and for the help I needed, it wasn't enough. And uh, it's scary to not have any help and to have people that genuinely cannot help, do not, genuinely cannot fix your problem in a way that you need. Um, it can be tough, and it's a rural area for the most part. And, um, yeah, it's it's a tragedy, man. I think there should be better infrastructure in the area and nationally for mental health and yeah, I for think folks so. who need help. I agree. I think it's, uh, it's especially tough here. You know, it's uh, I think the whole system here is so overwhelmed with all the addiction issues as well. Yeah. Uh, all these folks that are addicted to opiates and yeah, and uh, some of the other hard stuff that's out there. Yeah, I mean, I remember I went to see somebody in Northern High School, and um, it's the only counselor I was able to see on such short notice. And I needed help, and I didn't have any addiction, but because all he knew was addiction specialist, so he kind of approached everything with this mindset of an addiction treatment, mm-hmm. and that wasn't what I needed necessarily. And obviously, you know, drug addiction and alcohol addiction is a huge issue uh, in Vermont, New Hampshire. But uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to. Uh, kind of see the the disparity between uh, addiction counseling and counseling for other mental health problems. Well, the whole system is so strained, too, and then all the legal aspects. Um, so Vermont now, weed is legal. Yeah. But there's still no real avenue to buy it, right, in Vermont. Right. You go to Mass and buy it and bring it to Vermont. Can you like, do that? Well, I know people that do. Well, you got to go through New Hampshire, dude. <laughs> no, no, you got to cut around. You, you got to go through up. Worcester. Well, that's yeah. a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to go through Worcester, exactly. You don't want to drive through New Hampshire with that. You no, go no, to jail for 20 years. No, sir. No, yeah. sir. Yeah, crazy. It's insane in New Hampshire. Well, New Hampshire is the only, like this island now. One of our kids is uh, fighting up against that right now. And uh, um, if, uh, so what, what he allegedly did uh, in New Hampshire, you can get up to 20 years. Federally, it would be maximum of a year, right. and if you did it in Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, or any of the other states where recreational is legal, there'd be zero penalty. Zero so penalty. It's insane. It's, it's absolutely insane. And this, you know, he spent thousands of dollars and dedicated now two years of his life to fighting this. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Terrible. Yeah. I know many, many friends of mine, myself included, I was arrested for possession of maybe enough weed to get your cat high. It was like <laughs> yeah. it was like half a gram of weed in my car, and the cops yeah. in Hanover found it. Uh, and I got arrested for it, and I could have gone to Vermont or Massachusetts this today and had not been in any trouble at all. It's, yeah, it's you insane. can go to the toy store or whatever they call it, in, or yeah. the candy store in <laughs> Massachusetts and yeah. buy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. That I just If you're looking at it from like a logical and rational point of view, it seems insane. Then you look mm-hmm. at the legislation and the bureaucracy of it is just makes it so... So absurd. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's terrible. Do you get involved in politics at all, or do you, do you watch it or listen to it? I definitely, I, well, I mean, it's kind of hard to stay away from it. I actually don't like to be completely uninformed. Um, yeah. It's obviously been a very overwhelming, insane. My first election was uh, 2016. So you voted in 2016? I voted in 2016. Yeah. Um, and I just, it's it's hard. It's hard, man. It's hard to to have conversations with people about politics because I don't know if I'm, because it's so tied up in identity now. That it's, yeah, it's yeah. hard for me to connect with somebody um, and feel like I can be honest with somebody about something um, and and not kind of go against their entire worldview. Um, I think that creates a huge wedge between people. Um, yeah, because these worldviews aren't developed on their own. It's it is no. an identity that they've signed on to. Right. So they don't really have a lot of people don't really have an educated thought behind it. No, they don't. It's a. It's. I, I pay attention. It terrifies me what's going on in the world. I think it's terrifying. Whether yeah. you're Republican or Democrat, I think this is all just terrifying and awful. and It sucks. And I, every day I feel like I'm living in a cartoon or a movie or something. Yeah, it's pretty scary. We just had, uh, I, don't, I don't think you were home, we just had uh, uh, ice raids locally. 
um, Border Patrol set up uh, up on the interstate. I read about uh, that. Yeah. Two days ago, and uh, they had traffic backed up for miles, uh, searching every car. Um, you know, and when I lived in Texas, I lived in El Paso for a while, and that was the norm. I mean, you just yeah. as you leave El Paso, you are going to go through a permanent Border Patrol checkpoint, right. and they're going to ask you, "Are you a citizen or not?" And that's fine. That's all. You know, it's. 10 miles from the border. Where's the border? 150 miles from here? I don't know. It's. It, I think we're within 100 miles as the crow flies, so that makes it legal. But, uh, you know, but Seems over the at top. the same time, the best thing that they can do is do that because they're going to really piss off a bunch of, you know, people who are normally would have supported that type of action, I guess. Right, so, yeah. I mean, you're just disrupting yeah. people's days. Big and, time. And yeah. also, I mean, you go you go through as a white guy and you'll get you'll get let by, but mm-hmm. you go through if you're if you're of Mexican descent or of some other, some literally any foreign descent, you're going to get... Skin color, yeah. You're going to yeah. be questioned in a in, a, in a, a way that's scary. It's scary to be questioned by the police. Sure. And it's scary to think that they could just take your life away for yeah. no reason. I think that's... I think it's awful. I mean, I, I read about that. I can't... I couldn't believe that they were this far... this far south of the border. Yeah, they used to have a permanent or semi-permanent set up over on 91 South, uh, over in uh, White River Junction, but... But this was a temporary they just threw up the other day. Did I read that they got they deported a couple people like yeah they a couple nabbed days some people. Yeah, they grabbed some people out on the road in front of uh, here who had just eaten at our restaurant too. Jesus, man. So, you know we don't ID people coming in. Yeah, shit, <laughs> well, yeah. You know? most of these yeah, people that come people here. Food, man. Yeah, I mean most of these people that come here are just you know looking to work hard and and they send some money home, but they spend money on the economy too. I mean these guys that uh, that they nabbed, they'd come into the place our place with a party of nine. They spent. Uh, I mean, about 180 bucks. Yeah. You know, money that they earned. They earned and contributed uh, to the local economy. And you know, they contribute to the overall economy. That's one of the biggest misnomers. People think that you know, people who are working as undocumented, uh, you know, people that are working under a false social security number, they, they're saying you know they don't pay taxes. They do pay taxes. They pay uh, if they're on your payroll. Like we've had people on our payroll before that we that they we hired they had a id they had a social security card right. everything looked legit and we hired them this has happened twice in 14 years where later on we find out this person wasn't uh, who they said they were right but uh, there's nothing we can do they have a what great id yeah. yeah i mean we look at the id it looks like them it looks like a real id and they have a social security card then we'll put them on payroll so but both of these people that have worked for us over the years they paid medicare they paid social security you know they paid their federal income tax but they never get any of those benefits because right. it's not a real yeah, and a real name and number and all that, so they're paying thousands of dollars into the system that they never use, and that happens all across, all over the place. And there are people who are paid under the table. I've never paid anybody under the table. That's that's a whole different story. But there right. are plenty of Americans who are paid under the table too. Right. So these guys that came into our place and spent that money, I, you know, they're hanging drywall somewhere locally and doing construction. I would just guess based on they had you know drywall all over them. And, right. Um, they were getting shuttled away in a van, and three of them got got uh, pulled over out in the interstate, or not in the interstate, out on just the road out in front here and uh, taken into custody. But it's tough. We just had a, another friend that we had that, once again, we didn't even know he was um, here illegally. He'd been here for seven years from Guatemala. We just assumed he had asylum here and a Social Security card and ID and everything, but it turned out that it was a false one. But this kid, you know, he's a local kid. He's a Catholic boy, you know, went to church every Sunday. No crime, no criminal interests at all, working 45, 50 hours a week, making really good money paying a ton of taxes. Good they, person. Really good person. Uh, huge, you know, f- uh, group of family and friends here. But they... I, yeah. They, you yeah. wonder what the point is behind it. I mean... Well, I mean, I, they put him in jail for three and a half months and then charged him with a felony. <laughs> so now he's a felony in the United States and they deported him to Guatemala. So he's screwed. Yeah, and you, and you know, when you, you hear about it on the news and you hear about it in the papers and on TV and then you 
you see it happen to somebody that you know to be a good person and you wonder what the point of it all is and what the goal is in the end. You know, I, I don't know as much as I should about the politics behind it all and the reasons behind it all and the different infrastructures put in place to prevent illegal immigration, but I like to look at things from like a human perspective, yeah, exactly. human point of view, and yeah. that's obviously what your experience has been is yeah. seeing a good person be be treated horribly and taken away from a community that they've created for themselves through hard work and dedication is is on paper objectively a horrible thing and yeah, I, I, it makes I me agree. terribly sad for those folks and i don't know if the answer is or what the right thing to do is but all i know is that it's a horrible thing and it, it sucks and the scary the scary idea that someone could come and take your life away even though you've been living it the right oh, it way. happens yeah i mean we had to go clean this kid's apartment out because <sighs> nobody else was around to do it you know and that's it. It's not even a, you know, it's been turned into a political issue, but it really isn't. If you look back, life. yeah, because it, it's not a Democratic issue or Republican issue. The last person that made any headway with uh, immigration at all was uh, Ronald Reagan. Right. And he was, you know, the champion of the Republican Party, right? So he actually gave amnesty to people like my wife and, and thousands of other people that were living in the United States and working. And that was back in 85 or 87. And um, I don't remember... Uh, I think it was 80, yeah, anyway, one of those years. And since then, I mean, it's, we've gone through George Bush 1, Bill Clinton for two terms, George Bush 2, uh, you know, Obama. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, I think largely his hands were tied um, by the divisions in the Senate and, right. and all of that. And now, you know, the current administration sure as hell isn't going to no. do anything for immigration. But, yeah, it's, it's a human issue. Yeah, I, yeah I've, always, I've always tried to look at things from, like, I'm just an emotionally sympathetic human being and yeah. class politics race, whatever aside, it's, it's just awful, man. I feel I feel so so bad for those folks, and I can't imagine it's easy to have to do that to somebody either. So it's hard, man. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, I think it's going to take a lot of uh, people from your generation getting up and participating in the next next election to make an impact, you know. Yeah. Dude, I just want to open the news and have there be, like, something nice happening. Yeah. It's like, local boy, like, gets a balloon from the fair. There instead of go. like yeah. 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 Instead of some awful shit. It's always something awful, man. I can't believe how, like, depressing and sad it all is, and I don't know. I want to know what I can specifically because you feel powerless. You know, you, there's so many safeguards in front of you actually achieving anything, and I want I want to know what yeah. I can actually do to make things better, make a better place because it sucks right now. You know, they say it's uh, you don't have to change the world; you can just make small differences, right? Right. Yeah. I guess that's it. That's it. Yeah. If everybody does that. Um, so for kids that are, you know, want to pursue a career like yours, or even just just test it out. How do they go about it these days? Um, if I could recommend around here, if I was if someone if you're if you're if you're a local person listening to the podcast and you want to make music, I think um, just getting out and playing as much as you can. I know there's not a whole lot around here, but playing the open mics, getting in front of a crowd, constantly writing music. If you like to write music, writing every day, um, not giving up in yourself. Except your first your first few songs you're gonna write are gonna be awful. I wrote terrible music for five years um and i'm still writing some terrible music i think i write about 100 shitty songs for every decent one i do pretty Uh, good ratio yeah yeah, not a bad ratio Uh, it takes a lot of time but if you write every day and 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 you work hard at it then you can develop the ability to create something cool and uh writing about what you're feeling and what you're going through performing that with that honesty in mind I, i think putting yourself out there as much as you can um, trying to find it because there's, there are communities of music here you can find if you look hard enough and mm-hmm. yeah I think just not giving up on yourself and uh, and knowing that if you're if you work hard enough and you and you believe you have the talent then you will you will get there one way or the other and 
and adjusting your expectations accordingly, you know. Did you put stuff out on social media when you were a kid, or did you just keep it all, like, in person? It was, I, I was actually started out in SoundCloud, so mm-hmm. I would, I would work with, obviously, there's a big kind of, like, ski EDM community in, in, in Vermont. A lot mm-hmm. of my friends were, like, producers and wanted to be DJs, and so I would write these songs on the acoustic guitar, and I would go hang out with buddies of mine and, and record music, and they would put, like, a drop on it, and then we, we would put it on SoundCloud, and I would, you know, I would just put it out there for my friends to hear, and it wasn't constantly self-promoting or anything like that. I just put it out for my friends to hear, and... And I think people really, really, really dug it. And uh, that's how that's how it kind of got my start. And it kind of started to build that way. Um, but there are so many great free sites and there's an easy easy places to record. Um, if anyone here is listening, Tuck's Rock Dojo at New Hampshire. Yeah, Tuck's Stocking. Yeah, yeah. he was com- the facilitator of my entire career. He would, <laughs> I would record all my music there. He would show me how to do things, show me the recording process. Um, he has people, he allows you to come in, pay him a little bit of money to record a song very professionally with with a world-class musician that he is, kind of overseeing the whole thing. And uh, it's a great way to get your music recorded if you don't know anyone has equipment or you don't want to spend the money on equipment. Um, put your music online. There's no shame in it. You know, if it stinks, it stinks. And if it's good, people listen to it, and that's great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy and it's cheap. And I think it's the best way to keep track of your progress. I don't think there's an easy, like, get rich quick scheme for music you'd like to know what it is i would love to know god please tell me i'll do whatever it takes (laughs) i will sell my soul to you um yeah if i could give any i don't feel like very qualified to give advice on how to make it because i'm still working really hard myself but i've gotten this far by writing every day and putting myself out there and playing as much as possible and and not letting uh small setbacks kind of destroy the bigger picture for myself i mean it's always a journey no matter what i mean i suspect that there are people who are, you know, much more successful than either of us that are out there that still feel that they're only on the cusp of it. You know what I mean? It's it's incredible to me in my experience in the music industry, working with some pretty high class folks in this in this business, is how similar, how similarly, uh, they all think about creativity and about mm-hmm. success. I was working with a friend of mine, Joel Little, who wrote and uh, produced Pure Heroin by Lord and won a Grammy for it, and. Yeah. Uh, he just did the Taylor Swift record, and which is crazy. And um, but he's one of, the, one of the biggest songwriters in the world. Great guy. But remember, he said that he feels like every single song he wrote, he writes, is the last good thing he'll ever do. And that after he got a Grammy, he still felt like he wasn't good enough, and he felt like he was, was an imposter and he didn't belong there. Yeah. Um, so I, those feelings are universal, and and you know you can you can live with a feeling that you're an imposter and let that stop you, or you can. Have that be the drive to keep going. I was gonna say, in some ways, that's you know a good thing. You don't want to get there and be that guy that says, "Oh, I'm done. I made no. it." If you, yeah, you're probably not very good if that's the way you feel. I always feel, <laughs> always feel shitty by yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> no, always know. Just always, always expect more from yourself, and always push yourself to do better. And and uh, don't let that don't let the expectation stop you, but you know let it drive you. So. And you've made huge gains this year. I mean, you played some really big venues this year as a guest on stage. And yeah. Now, so yeah, you, I don't want to. You were at Bonnaroo, is that right? I was at. I did Bonnaroo this summer. Yeah. I did Lollapalooza, which was just crazy. It was crazy, man. Mm-hmm. It was thirty thousand people were at the show I performed at. Yeah. And I did one song, but it was the most insane, surreal experience of my entire life. Mm-hmm. I like. You could have picked out thirty people, and that'd be all the people at Murano Gelato, and it was like <laughs> multiply that by a thousand, and yeah, yeah, it was it was insane. Um, it was one of the coolest things ever. It was like looking at a sea of people in Dennis Rodman jerseys mm. <laughs> watching me watching me perform. It was cool. It was a, it was a rush for sure. Uh, surreal. I, I did uh, 
Riverfest in Gloucester, which mm-hmm. was I think eleven thousand people, and, wow. and Do Good in Montpelier, which was uh, ten thousand people. So the biggest crowds we've ever played for this summer. That's awesome. Uh, which is awesome, man. It's it's so cool to be able to do. It's actually a little. The stakes are a little lower in those situations because. You know, when there's 50 to 100 people in a room, you can see all their eyeballs and mm-hmm. you can see if they're not enjoying it, if they're hating the show. Uh, but when there's 15,000 people, you can look out and it doesn't, you can't really tell. It's just a bunch of people uh, sitting in the grass listening to the song. So mm-hmm. it was a cool experience. It was like kind of a low stakes environment for me, but yeah. I got to be in front of a lot of folks. Sure. So it was, it was interesting. It made me really look forward to uh, when I can come back and kind of be the headlining actor. Or, uh, or be somebody that everyone's there to see. So you can have that many people there for you. It's just a crazy thing. Is it terrifying or does it feed your energy? Or is it some it's, of both? It's or? both, man. It's yeah. it's terrifying. Just if you think about it in the way that it actually is, it's terrifying that all those people are looking up at you for at least two minutes to an hour and uh, and you need to come to terms with that. But it also boosts your energy to think, this is, I have these people's attention. I You can, you are about to, this part of the day for thirty thousand people is about you, mm-hmm. and you have the you have the ability to to leave them feeling good about themselves and feeling excited for you and to find out about you and it's the biggest platform you'll ever get. So uh, it, it's energizing and, and terrifying at the same time. And you were on Seth Meyers not too long ago, right? We, yeah, I did Seth Meyers in yeah. July, June or July. Yeah, we just happened to be flipping by and saw you. Like, oh, <laughs> shit, <it's> Noah. <laughs> what's up? That's really cool. <laughs> Yo, yeah. that was cra- that was crazy. That was really cool. It was actually a, kind of a disaster because um, mm-hmm. I was supposed to pr- pr- uh, play Mess, which was a single we were pushing at the time. Yeah. And Mess unfortunately did not explode a radio, which is how we wanted it to. So we had to do the next single, and I found out that I had to perform the next single on Seth Meyers two days before the performance. Mm-hmm. We had never practiced it before as a band, never played it live. So Seth Meyers was the first time we ever played the song Cynic live. Yeah. So it was a really interesting experience and really kind of nerve wracking experience, but. Uh, it was one of those like this is the worst thing that's gonna happen to me, mm-hmm. uh, in this in this live setting. So let's get it out of the way with it. It's all up, uphill from here. So well, it sounded great, and uh, yeah, I, I expected uh, to hear something that I knew. You know, right. a passenger is another song yours that I just love. Oh, thanks. I think man. it's a great tune. Thanks, um, but uh, so I was you know expecting something that I had heard before, and then cynic i thought it was great and it went off really well yeah. and then afterwards i could see you just as a human being again because yeah. when you're performing i mean you really take on yeah you know you, you, you take on the stage and you, yeah, you become right. that you know and, it, and it's it, you're really uh just at one with the art piece and you can see that thanks man and then afterwards you're just like, back to knowing <laughs> yeah, like, now what do i do yeah. i could see yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah man i mean it's like it never feels normal to be in the tv studio with Seth Meyers, he was actually from Bedford, New Hampshire. I was gonna say he's a New yeah. Hampshire boy. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. hilarious. He's from Bedford. He was, he was, he came backstage. And he's like, "Oh, I'm Bedford," and I'm like, "Oh, I'm Hanover." And I'm like, uh, and uh, he was saying that Sarah Silverman is Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah. Adam Sandler is Manchester, New Hampshire. And it was yeah. funny to think of these famous comedians being from, being from New Hampshire. But it's crazy just to be up there and with someone you see on TV every day in front and beyond TV and like. If you think about it too much, it freaks you out, and that's definitely freaking. Oh out. yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, you just gotta <laughs> just compartmentalize that. And it's all very like it's all very like manufactured. Like the room is freezing cold. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like what a hundred people in the audience that are clapping on on command. Yeah. And like there's like smoke going up, and there's cameras moving around, and just it's just super strange, man. Well, I don't know if you know, I did Colbert also as an audience member, oh. so I know exactly what you're. <laughs> Congrats, doing. man. Yeah, yeah, it was great. We were up in the top right. If you're on stage looking up, yeah, yeah, we didn't get on the camera. It's yeah. a cool. See, Ed Sullivan Theater is awesome. It's cold as hell, though. Cold. It's freezing yeah. cold, man. Yeah. It's it's historic. It's also pretty big. Seth Meyers is like half the size. Is it? Yeah. So Colbert was terrifying. And Never. you did uh, uh, which song? On I did hurt somebody. Hurt somebody. Yeah. That was scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was crazy. Colbert. It's a cool. 
it's a cool space to be in, but like I was in such like a tunnel vision mode mm. that I was just like staring at the floor, like shell shocked. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Stephen Colbert got my not my last name wrong five <laughs> times. I think they had like reintroduced it five times, like Noah Kahan, Noah Kahan. And everyone's yeah. like, it's Khan. He's like, no, it can't be Khan. There's no mm. way. Because I've got that extra A between the H yeah, and the yeah. N. <laughs> so he struggled with it. But uh, it was it was a sweet, sweet experience. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. That's pretty cool. And Afterwards was, in school. Yeah. yeah. And that was that, that was pretty early in your career too, wasn't it? That was, yeah. That was about a year after I released my first song. Maybe, yeah, about a year. That's um, great progression there. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Uh, my, my manager called me and he was like, hey, uh, we got some big news. And big news from my manager is usually like, you're streaming well in Jakarta. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, thanks, man. <laughs> uh, but he was like, you're doing Colbert. And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not doing that shit, dude. I cannot do that. Like, that's that's too big an undertaking. Um, Did you have the band with you on that one? I never yeah, saw it. Yeah, yeah, I had the band with me on that one, yeah. thank God. Um, yeah. And yeah, they were all nervous too. And they're super hardcore, hardened veteran players. And they were mm-hmm. scared too, which scared the shit out of me. Because usually they're like, we got this. And they were all like super nervous. And I was like trying to calm them down. And yeah, my manager my manager gets really nervous before my live performances, which is not what you want. Because <laughs> I'm like, we're going to kill this. He's like, you think you, you guys think you got it today? Yeah. <laughs> we're like, dude, you're the one that's supposed <laughs> to have my back right now. You know, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was that was nerve wracking. I bet, yeah, well, it was that's, fun. that's awesome. It's fun, man. Yeah. So, um, uh, where are you going from here? Uh, what's what's what do you see? Like, uh, what's your? I know it's it's tough to tough to really know where your career will take you, right? Right. But um, what what are your aspirations at this point? Um, it's a good question. Every day they change, but yeah. I think ultimately it's just to be able to continue having a career in music. It's so it's a rare thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I value it and cherish it so much, especially when I come back home and I take a second away from it and I realize how lucky I am to be doing it. So being able to continue making music for a living, uh, playing music for a living, but what I really want is to create a community in my music, and I feel like I'm starting to do that, where people people connect with what I have to say, and I think that's something that you can't lose, and I want to continue making people feel a little less like isolated in their lives or in their feelings. Um, and that's, I mean, I don't want to, it's not like an arrogant thing. I just want people to feel, I feel shitty a lot and I feel alone and sad a lot. And sometimes I feel over the moon, happy about things. And, uh, I want to express those feelings and have people feel the same way. And, uh, I want to be more connected to people and I hope they're, uh, more connected to themselves through my music. That's what I want. That's a beautiful thing. Um, I will say that, uh, you're in a position right now where you can make a difference in people's lives and um i say this knowing that when i met um chester from lincoln park right uh i met him in uh at a show slipknot played and then lincoln park played and and then after the show um these guys just came down and they were you know like at the edge of the audience and they were just talking to people and shaking hands and yeah and uh I remember just going up and, and just, you know, shaking his hand. I was probably one of the older guys there even then, you know, and and uh, and I just, uh, I don't know, I, I honestly, I couldn't even quote what we said to each other, but I just told him something just like, uh, you know, I just, I, I just love your, your show and just, you know, keep it up. Right. And I just, for that moment, I mean, he just, he was really good. He just connected. Yeah. And he just like, you know, he's like, thank you, man. You know, you could just yeah. feel it. And they were out there, and they were talking to all these people that saw them as just, you know, almost on a deity level. Yeah, right. And uh, and just connecting with all these individuals out there, just one by one. 
and that's that, yeah. pretty sweet. That's what it, that's what it's all about. And may he rest in peace. Obviously, yeah. I've heard of, by all accounts a wonderful person. Um, I connected to his music a lot. Um, yeah, I think just having that moment of connection with 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 a fan, having even just one fan feel like they were less alone in themselves through my music or felt like they found joy in what I'm doing is really the only reason I, I do it and that's going to be the motivator for the rest of my career so being able to continue connecting with people and making people feel like they're less alone or happier having known my sounds so well it's a great album I got it right here and uh yes just, sir uh, just um on the vinyl man yeah on the vinyl I bought this off Amazon on the day one actually I pre-ordered it so that they oh, shipped it out thank you man um but uh it's full of great music and uh um, uh, every song is on here for a reason. You can tell, you know, it's, uh, um, it's not just something that you put up there as filler. And, Thanks, uh, man. Thank uh, you so much. I really appreciate it. So keep doing what you're doing, though. It's great having you here, and I hope you come back and, and talk, with, uh, talk with me again. Anytime, sometime. man. I absolutely I love, love, love the conversation. Wonderful questions, and I love what you do, and I love Gusano's food, and I'll always, <laughs> I'll always, be, a, I'll always be a patron here, and I'm always happy to talk whenever you want. Maybe oh, have me. Thanks, man. <laughs> really appreciate it. And uh, also, if you ever, if you guys want to come to a show, just let me know, and we'll make sure you guys all. All right. And how can people find you right now? You find me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Noah Khan, N O A H K A H A N. I know that extra A is confusing Mm -hmm. and annoying, uh, but uh, please check me out and listen to the music and go eat a gusano, (laughs) y'all. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Killer, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Noah for being on the podcast today. And don't forget to check out his new album, Busy Head. You can find it on most streaming services and also, of course, on Amazon. Go ahead and buy a copy. Do yourself and him a favor. Thank you to you for listening, and please come check us out again soon on Radio Free New Hampshire.